Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. For eight weeks now, we have enjoyed the Lord's teaching about the structure of society. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say that, because I've enjoyed it, maybe you haven't. I've enjoyed it because I've enjoyed thinking about the complex issues that create obstacles for people to submit to the Lord. I've also enjoyed that we've come across resolutions for those obstacles by examining them in light of the Lord's promises rather than the world's preferences. We see this in the wife's submission, in which the world's preference is to abolish her submission, but the Lord's promise is to apply her submission by using it in her life. We could discuss this with the husband's love, the child's obedience, and a father's encouragement, or even the worker's obedience, but submission is the most obvious example. Today, though, we close out this series on a foundations for a thriving society by looking at a master's responsibility, and indeed that's the title, Foundations for a Thriving Society, a Master's Responsibility. So I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, one other time. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that also you have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. A perfect God is best seen in the perfect function of God's society. As creator, our God is not only the architect of all creation, but he is also the engineer of all of creation's operations. God has designed each function so that not only does creation function efficiently and effectively, but in a way that creation and the order of creation always points to a God of order. Each aspect shows the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of God and the superiority of God. 
The Lord is displayed not just by the performance of creation, but by the presence of people in that creation. Made in the image of God, it is people who best expose God. To accomplish that, the Lord has designed roles and responsibilities for every person. For wives, we saw it was submission to their husbands. For husbands, it was to love their wives. For children, it was to obey their parents, while the role of parents was to not exasperate their children. Most recently, we, we saw that slaves were called to obey masters. Every person has been given the perfect role in God's perfect design to display the perfect God. By addressing husbands and wives and children and parents and now slaves and masters, we see that the Lord's design includes all people. It does not matter a person's gender, male or female. It does not matter a person's age. We saw young or old with children and parents. And it does not matter a person's status, whether slave or master. Every person has a part to play on the stage that God has built. This should come as no surprise because God values people. And so it makes sense that he would allow them a valuable role in his plan. God has orchestrated all aspects of society to work together fully. And if you remove any of these roles, it disrupts God's perfect design. At the same time, he has also orchestrated that all things point back to him. So that if any of these individuals we just mentioned fails to fulfill his or her role, his or her God-given function, it then distorts God's perfect image. By functioning as the Lord has purposed, it not only creates societal order, but it is a means for God to draw people to himself. This morning, I, I want you to look upon the role of masters so that you see the continuation of this order. The Lord's call to masters is unique, and, and perhaps to some, it may be irrelevant. It's doubtful that any of us here have ever owned and will ever own slaves. But if we take this text and apply it as to today's culture as we did with the slaves' work, these slave owners today then would be like the business owners of this world. But even that is not the normal role of the average person. Very few of us will own a business. That doesn't make this text unimportant. Some will find themselves as business owners, certainly responsible for the just and fair treatment of their employees. More people will find themselves in positions of leadership in which they must steward people according to God's will. But we'll also see in this passage that there are principles for every human relationship. Therefore, we look upon this text and look upon the Lord's plan for masters, and I want you to see how it points to God's purposes for creation. From this text, we see the grace of God and its manifestation in the life of humanity and its impact on how we relate to one another. And so I want you to note first a master's position. A master's position. <coughs> it's not often that masters are warned, not just in scripture, but in anything of that era. 
But Paul takes this extraordinary step of addressing them directly, and he does so by the title of their position. These masters were the owners of the slaves, the very ones responsible for oppressing the working individuals of society in that day. It is doubtful that these owners were Christians. Few Christians would have had the resources to even have slaves. And yet, by, by even warning them at all, it's a reminder that these people were called masters, and they actually had a master themselves. Though they hold a high rank in society, there is one that outranks them all. It's not Paul, the man who <coughs> writes to them, that outranks them. It's the one whom Paul speaks on behalf of, who holds that higher position, which is who? It's God. It's none other than God himself who outranks them. How incredible it is that these owners, people who would not even call themselves followers of God, are indeed being spoken to by God. And now through the hand of Paul, this one true God, he addresses them by their title, Masters. This title reminds us of three aspects of calling attention to their position, not just in the culture, but in Christ. The word masters is not only the same word that's used later in our verse in, in Colossians 4.1, where it says you also have a master in heaven, but it is the same word translated Lord in the previous verse when describing the Lord Jesus Christ, or rather their master, Jesus Christ. Applied to slave owners now, we, we see three truths by this word, by the use of the word masters. Most obviously, this is a God-given title. The designation gives to the, he gives to these earthly men is a term that is first given to a heavenly master. John thirteen thirteen. you call me teacher and Lord, or you call me teacher and master, and you are right, for so I am. Or Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Or why do you call me Master, Master, and do not do what I tell you? Thus, Master is a term applied to Christ. These Masters then carry Christ's heavenly title into an earthly dominion. Such a title then does not only carry authority of Christ, it carries God's integrity and God's morality and God's purity. All that is done under this title is done in a way that reflects the very one who bestowed that title. Consider also that this is not just a God-given title, but it is a God-given position. If the Lord is sovereign, and let me assure you that he is sovereign, then these people find themselves in the position only because the Lord has purposed it. They're not there by their work, but by the Lord's work. They do not find themselves in this position simply because they willed it to be, but because the Lord willed it to be. How can this be? It no doubt raises some concerning points for believers. One of those first concerns is that if the Lord does not approve of the institution of slavery, as we've discussed the last few weeks, why would he do something that furthers it? Perhaps more concerning for some is 
that in this case, the Lord seems to have allowed unbelievers to have influence and even control over believers. Why would the Lord do such a thing? I won't claim to know the mind of God. So I can't say that I have a definitive answer for you. What I will say is this, that having seen the Lord's work in my lives and in your lives and in the lives of those spread out of the course of many millennia, including even those in scripture, I have confidence in the Lord's character. Therefore, if I'm told that the Lord is majestic, I trust that his majesty will be seen in all circumstances, including in this. If scripture says that the Lord is good, then I trust that his goodness will be revealed through here. Already we've seen in the previous verse and how the Lord is using the circumstances in the lives of the slaves for their sanctification. That is to say that despite those horrific circumstances, God is using them to produce godly character in the slaves' lives. And so as a result, we can also say that the Lord has allowed these slave owners to ascend to their positions. And we can trust that he does so for his own purposes. This is their God-given position. And finally, as with any individual, the slave owners also maintained a God-given image. As it says in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Even these masters are included in that description, that they too have been created in the image of God. They are bearers of his image, and the purpose of being made in the image of God is to reveal the person of God. In whatever role a person is placed, having been made in the image of God is to reveal God in that role. In the case of these masters then, by being made in his image, they're to use their roles as masters to reveal the Lord to others. And you may ask, but it seems these masters aren't even believers, as we just mentioned minutes ago. So doesn't it seem unlikely that they would even reveal the Lord at all? And that's true. But then we have to trust that they will face the Lord's judgment for not stewarding God's image for his glory. Just as any of us would expect to face if we do not steward God's image in whatever role the Lord has placed us in. So contained in the very first word of this text in Colossians 4.1, the Lord has conveyed that masters have a God-given title, a God-given position, and a God-given image, reminding the masters, even as unbelievers, they have been assigned a task by God, a task that requires of them behavior that is consistent with God's character. How masters fulfill that role, then, is defined by the next part of the verse that states, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And so from that text, I want you to note, second, a master's obligation. A master's obligation. When you have been given a title and a position and an image by God, 
it automatically comes with a responsibility. This is true of any of us. Our place, our function, our role. They're all imparted to us by God and by his grace, and therefore it is a gift of his. As part of his sovereign rule, he gives them. Therefore, they come with responsibility that we will act in a way that reflects his rule in our lives. For masters, that behavior is defined as acting justly and equally. Those words regulate slavery here. This should come as no surprise. Because in a world without sin, these two characteristics would describe all human relationships. Had sin not corrupted the world, just and equal would be the very character of every person's relationship with another human. Even today, it is the expectation of all Christian relationships. As expressed by Proverbs 21.3, stating, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now that duty to act righteously or or justly and equally here in our text is applied specifically to masters. Like husbands and fathers who were addressed previously, masters are to not abuse their authority. The ethicist prior to Paul, prior to Paul's writing of this letter even, they would all agree and all advocate for just and fair treatment of slaves. What's even more profound is that all these ethicists all agree on this point, despite the fact that they're all from varying cultures and different eras. We see this in the Talmud of the Jews, the Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato and Seneca from the Roman Empire. All of them stipulate to treat slaves justly and fairly. And yet, by all accounts, and not just Bible accounts, but by historical records, it appears that that was not the case at all. In fact, slaves seem to be treated the opposite of that. That's important because it means when we look at this verse, Paul, and and really God through Paul, overthrows the entire institution of slavery. And they do so with these two words that we keep repeating justly and fairly. To act justly is to act righteously. It is used in the New Testament to speak of conduct that meets the standards of God. We see this in God's own character, in how he deals with people. Just look at our call to worship this morning from Psalm 140, 12, and 13. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. He will and will execute justice For the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name, and the upright shall dwell in your presence. In a negative sense, it's used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, stating, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Justice is an attribute of God. The call for justice, though, is combined with the call for equality or equity in our text. 
Some versions say treat slaves fairly. Others say equally. The concept is to deal with slaves the same way that God deals with people. Impartially. The masters are reminded of this in the parallel text of Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 9, it states, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. It's somewhat interesting that in Colossians, Paul reminds the slaves that God is impartial. But in the letter to Ephesians, that reminder is reserved for the masters. Most people appeal to God's justice and impartiality when they desire a specific outcome, when they want something in their favor. Usually it's when they've been treated unjustly. And so we will call upon the Lord to vindicate us, forgetting that God's justice and his equality and his impartiality works both ways. Let me tell you a story that was told to me this week. Bethany and I sat under the teaching of a man this week, and admittedly, I was greatly impressed with this man. He dressed as I would like to dress, spoke as I would like to speak, but most importantly, he was solid, teaching biblical truth, teaching truth as truth. I actually told Bethany, I don't know if I want to know this man or if I want to be this man. And then she said, but isn't he one of your professors? She was right, he was. I had forgotten. His name is Dr. Ellen. And he tells the story of a time when he was ministering in prison not that long ago. In fact, by the story, you'll figure out exactly how long ago. Because the guards asked him to talk to a man that was in prison. A man who wouldn't wear a mask. This man had professed Christ, and so the guards thought that Dr. Ellen, as a professing believer, might be able to talk with him. You need to know, first off, that Dr. Ellen is a black man. And the man he's being asked to talk to is a member of the Aryan Nation, or was a member. That is to say that, in the world's terms, these two men don't mix. One is black and one is white, and one is very racist. (coughs) But they sat and they talked. And this man began to share with Dr. Ellen that as a younger man indeed a child, he had been abused and attacked. And the attacker had come up behind him to the point of gripping his mouth with his hands. And so for this man, wearing that mask made him relive that moment. And it was really just too hard to bear. In the course of that conversation, this man expressed his anger at God. His anger that God did not inflict his wrath on his abuser at that moment. That God didn't bring about his justice on that man. Dr. Ellen responded, but brother, three years ago, you would have killed me. And that man wasted no time saying, yeah, I would have. The man had not been a believer prior to three years ago. Do you know what that means? If God had brought this impartial justice down on the abuser at that moment, that same man would have also faced God's impartial judgment, 
which means he wasn't a believer and he would have faced, by God's law, eternal damnation. That's the definition of impartiality. That if God is impartial with one person, he will be impartial with another, treating all people justly and fairly according to his law. <clears throat> but then we see something very important in that. The Lord is, is just and fair, and it is that same fairness that he calls masters to have. Indeed, impartiality works both ways. We often want God's justice, at least when it's in our favor. But God's justice is actually meant to be a revelation of God's grace. By not acting in that moment, God gave grace, really to both men, but especially to this man. He gave him time to repent and respond to God's call. And so the call to act justly and equally here is simply a call to treat others as they've been treated in the gospel. How can masters do that? By treating slaves with their God-given character. See, justice and equality are godly characteristics. They are part of God's character, which means they derive both their meaning and their motivation from the Lord. That means that because they are godly attributes, they are defined by God. And because they are godly attributes, we can only display them when we are walking in him. This all comes about at the reception of the gospel. To treat others in this way, including slaves, is to treat them just as God has dealt with all people who turn to him. To treat others justly and equally, one has to experience being treated justly and fairly themselves. After all, how can a person imitate something that they don't know themselves? And where is this most displayed? In the gospel. Consider also that what happens at the acceptance of the gospel. That upon calling out to Christ, what happens at that moment? That new believer receives the Holy Spirit of God. And so as a believer, given the Spirit of God, they are now enabled to show God's character because God has given them himself who enables that believer to live out that character. And so masters are to show God's character by living out their God-given character when they come to Christ. But as we've talked about, unfortunately, for the majority of masters who seem to be unbelievers, this won't change until they come to Christ. But we hope it will by calling attention to it. Paul is placing an emphasis here. And the moment it does happen, if it happens... That relationship between masters and slaves is transformed. But isn't that true of every relationship? That an understanding of God's treatment of us justly and equally will cause us to treat others this way also. I want you to note finally a master's disposition. A master's disposition. If you read the text, it, it closes, it says, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The gospel obligates godly behavior because, as we just saw, it generates a godly attitude. I would say that the sacrifice of the Savior brings about the submission of the servant in this case. Again, the sacrifice of the Savior brings about the submission of the servant. The Savior sets one free from sin so that that person is free to then submit to Christ. And thus Christ is our God-given ruler. He is placed there to rule over us. Every person has a God-given ruler. It may not seem as though these slave owners, these masters, have no one above them. Nobody to rule over them. But the reality is that God himself is their ruler. He is their God-given ruler. The same God who guides the slaves in these previous verses now govern the slave owners in this verse. The same God who instructs the earthly slaves now issues instructions to their earthly masters. What we see is that God is not merely the Lord of the believers, but he's Lord of unbelievers also. Regardless of whether or not they surrender to him or they submit to him, he is still Lord. He is Lord over the believing slaves and he is Lord over the unbelieving masters. It says that their master, who is Christ, is in heaven. This placement of Christ in heaven denotes that Christ is above everything. That his lordship is active in heaven and on earth. In John 17, we see Christ surrender himself to the will of the Father. And immediately after he expresses that surrender in his prayer to the Father, Christ's submission is expressed by his obedience on the cross shortly thereafter. Later, that surrender, though, is demonstrated by his ascension into heaven. And then ultimately his rule over heaven and earth. Paul expressed this earlier in Colossians, writing in Colossians 1, 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. By giving himself to the Lord's will, Christ has willfully given himself as ruler over these masters. As their Messiah, Christ provides salvation. As their manager, Christ provides instruction. And now as their master, Christ provides admonition. Those activities of Christ produce the attitudes of Christ's subjects. That is to say, it generates a particular disposition, a particular attitude. Reminding masters that They are nothing but slaves themselves, subjects to Christ as ruler. They will respond to him in humility and submission. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, and I just want to read to you verses 20 through 24. 
These verses state, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Notice how each person is to serve, whether slave or master. Each person is called to live out their salvation in whatever role the Lord has placed that person. In this way, the individual proves his loyalty to Christ by obedience in his current position. For the master, his submission is proven by treating slaves justly and fairly in his position as master. (coughs) Despite their position as rulers on earth, even masters over slaves are slaves themselves. And one day they will be answerable to God, as it is written. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing that the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. That is to say, they will be approved by God or admonished by God. For masters, this motivates their treatment of slaves. That as God behaves towards them, they should behave the same way towards others. Again, is this not true of all of our relationships? That we treat others the way God has treated us because he indeed is our ultimate master. But a right relationship with others comes with a right relationship with the Lord. Only when the Lord is properly submitted to can one properly steward their relationships for him. That's the truth we're seeing in this text. That only when they have properly submitted to Christ can they properly steward their relationship with their slaves. Even the role of masters is critical to the Lord's design of society. This morning we've seen the master's position and the master's obligation and the master's disposition. The master's position is not one of severity, but one of stewardship. And this position brings out about the master's obligation, which is to treat the slaves both fairly and justly. But that obligation, though, is, is not only the result, it's the result of the disposition, but that disposition is submission to his master. Having submitted to the Lord, then they will treat their slaves justly and fairly. The Lord has determined the perfect function of society so that he may bring glory to him, and we may bring glory to him, while at the same time imparting his goodness. Colossians three eighteen through 4, chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1, it expounds upon those functions, and it outlines the roles and the responsibilities for every individual. It begins with husbands and wives before identifying then the aspects of the relationship between parents and children and specifically fathers. 
And now we've seen slaves and masters and their role in the Lord's society. Each of us will find ourselves listed among those titles. Some of us are husbands or wives. Some of us are children and others are parents and so on. Some of us will find ourselves carrying multiple roles. Maybe we're a husband and a slave, a husband and a, a, an employee. Maybe we're a parent and a master. The point is this, that every person has a place in God's society. There's not one person excluded. There's not one person who is valued less than another. And so when you read a text like the one we've been reading... You should be able to look upon it and, and find your place amongst the Lord's plan. That may even change over time. Maybe right now you're a child, but someday you become a spouse. But regardless of the stage of life, the Lord has a calling for each person. And by looking at God's call to masters, we see that the Lord equips us for that call. Like masters, each of us has a God-given title. Here it has been husband, wife, parent, child, slave, master. But it's not limited to that. Elsewhere in scripture, we see the titles of pastor and elder. Informally, it may even be just the title of friend. But each has a God-given title. And that God-given title leads to a God-given position. By understanding our title, we understand the position and function that God has for us in his plan. And then each of us has been given a God-given image. We've given, been given God's image to reflect God in those positions. And we do that through God-given character, which is imparted to us at the gospel. And we come underneath a God-given ruler who instructs us how to do that. Do you see what this does? Each of these regulates our relationships with one another so that we once again function in the perfect will of God. And the perfect will of God is for us to live out the design of God. We do this by living out our relationship with him in our relationships with one another. And so we ask, how is the Lord calling each of us to live for him in our relationships? Remembering that God is best displayed in society when we live in God's design for society. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are <clears throat> incre indeed incredibly grateful and thankful that the order of society has been established by you. It was not subject to our own thoughts and our own whims. Knowing that we're tainted by sin and selfish beings, we would have created something that mirrored what we wanted and exalted us. And yet, Lord, you have designed and given function and order to society so that it exalts you, Lord. Father, may we recognize our role and our purpose in that. May we recognize how you've placed us in this society and this time for the sake of revealing you to this particular culture in this era, Lord. And may we do that by living out the role that you've given us. And so, Father, may we exalt you in all that we do. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.